Moses, at this point, is in the wilderness. He was driven out because he tried to spark a slave rebellion against Pharaoh. He killed a man. The other slaves were not on board with him. And he forced to flee at age 40 into the wilderness to Midian, where he married the high priest's daughter or granddaughter. We talked about that, depending on how you translate it. And that's where we left him at age 40. And it doesn't give us the timeline in this chapter, but this is going to be 40 years later that he's been in the wilderness. And I've said this before, and we're going to keep reminding ourselves, especially through Exodus and, and the following books, the wilderness in the Bible, whether it's the desert, whether it's the forest, whether it's deep water, the wilderness is a symbol of change, transformation, discipline. Deuteronomy chapter 8, we read this last time, where God says the wilderness is where I allowed you to hunger. I allowed you to have some rough times so that I could teach you some things. That's the purpose of the wilderness. And we discussed the, the ways we get in. Sometimes it's, it's sin that pushes us out there. Sometimes it's a crisis of family. Sometimes it's war. And the best way to go is to go willingly, just to take the step willingly to go and let God work on you. But that's not how Moses got there. Now, this, this story that really in, in various ways is played out in Scripture over and over again, the most important part of the wilderness and the stories that inevitably take place is to meet God in the wilderness. This is the distinction in the Christian version of this story because the, the world has their versions of the hero's journey and what you call it, but the Bible has this unique, non-negotiable step. You have to meet God. If you don't meet God, you just went hiking. <laughs> you just went to the wilderness. Jacob met God at Bethel, remember? He fled from his home, and he was at Luz, as it was called then, but then the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Paul met God at Mount Sinai. It's not narrated in Acts. He just tells us about it, that he met God there. Elijah also met God at Mount Sinai, also at the brook Cherith. Elijah had two Stories. Jesus went into the wilderness, driven by the Holy Spirit, tempted for 40 days and 40 nights, and then the angels came and ministered to him. Jesus was communing with his Father by the Holy Spirit. Because why? We don't just go into the wilderness for the fun of it. God wants to send you back or send you on. He wants to give you a vision for your future. Very often when people find God in the wilderness, so to speak, in, in the Bible, God shows them what he's going to do with their life. Ananias was told by the Lord that Paul was being shown all the things that he must suffer for my sake. You find the vision from God. You find your destiny, the calling, the reason God has created you. Sometimes you get all of it. Sometimes you just get a step. But God wants to give you those things. And the dreams that God likes to give us are intimidating. The world talks about, oh, dream big, think big. Okay, nobody is going to outthink or outdream God. The Bible says that God can do things greater than we could ever ask or think. You can't even out-daydream God. And so when he gives you what he wants you to do, it can be intimidating, especially because you're in the wilderness. <laughs> Moses just ran away from home because he was going to get killed. Jacob fled because his brother said, as soon as dad dies, you're next. Jesus knew he was going back to the cross, which is why you must meet God in the wilderness. Because it is God who is going to sustain you along the journey when you go back. This passage here is one of the pivotal passages of Scripture. And tonight we're going to look at 
five characteristics of God that this reveals to us. I had a whole different outline, but as I was going through it, I kept on saying, I need to remember to talk about this attribute of God. Oh, and I also talked about this so much, got to remember. And by the time I was done, I was like, you know what? This is really about God more than anything else. It's about a revelation of God. So we're going to look at five characteristics of God. And, and they all amount to what is summed up in Psalm 24, verse 1. I think just gives us the summary of everything we ought to know about God from this, which is, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. <laughs> so the earth is God's. Everything on the earth is God's. The world which is anything outside of that, is God's. And everybody that exists is God's. So whether this is your first time or your 101st time, Jesus would often withdraw to the wilderness to pray, wouldn't he? David was infrequently in the wilderness. you got to learn to know God again. And every time you go to prayer, every time you go to the Word, every time you have a crisis, you get to know God a little better. So let's read this story and A lot to learn here, starting in chapter 3, and we'll read the first three verses. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. So Moses began life born among the Hebrews, but raised in Pharaoh's house as a prince for 40 years. But now he's a shepherd. And you'll remember from Genesis 46, every shepherd, it said, is an abomination to the Egyptians. They thought cattle and sheep and hair in general, were unclean and unsanitary. So catch how far Moses has fallen from an Egyptian perspective. He's not just no longer the prince. He's now a shepherd, right? He's now doing the worst job you could think of, even to himself, right? He was a Hebrew, but he would have been raised with Egyptian sensibilities, right? Imagine the first day. You're going to go out and you're going to tend the sheep. He goes, ew, don't you have anything else? you have anything else a little, a little cleaner that I could work with? And maybe he tried to keep his beard trimmed like a good Egyptian for the first couple of years. And then over time, just kind of gave up on that. Because now it's been 40 years. He's 80 at this point. And he leads the flock, it says, to the west of the wilderness. That word for west is literally the back, the backside of the wilderness. And we understand that to be the west probably because when Hebrews were describing directions, they oriented themselves to the east. So if you're facing east, back or behind you is going to be west. So either way, he's in the wilderness, the Sinai wilderness, or the wilderness of sin, as it is called. Not related to sin as in evil. Sin as in Sinai. Sinai, if you understand. We will look at the possible locations of the Mount of Sinai later, not tonight. But it's good to know, this is another thing that you see in the movies. In the movies, right, he's, he's staring up and there's this volcano that kind of hovers over where he's living. No, no, he's out in the wilderness. He's looking for pasture, probably. He's gone out farther than he normally would. And now he's out in the desert. He's in the wilderness, finding a place where his flocks can eat. And he winds up next to this mountain. Mount Horeb, it is called, or Sinai. Lots of mountains have different names. There are different languages, but it all refers to the same thing. 
And he sees, I'm sure this was at night that he would have noticed this, probably towards the top of the mountain, as I imagine it, that something's on fire. Something's on fire, and he has been tending sheep all day. There's not a whole lot to do out in the wilderness. He says, I'm going to go on up, and he sees, and he sees that it's a bush. And there's probably a moment of panic at first. Uh Uh-oh, that bush is on fire. Are there any other bushes around here? Is all the grazing land going to get burned up? And he sees it's burning, but it's not going anywhere. I don't think a little, you know, piddly little bush like you've got next to your door at home. This is probably something that had grown up, right? This is like a giant kudzu bush out in the middle of the woods. And he's like, okay, look at that. It's burning, but it still seems green when it flickers, and it's not shriveling up, and it's not crackling. And, but it's certainly on fire, so he's like, I'm going to go take a look. Now, why? He says, I'm going to go see why. And the answer is that in verse 2, the angel of the Lord was in the burning bush. The angel of the Lord had manifested himself in a burning bush. Fire is a very common image in the Bible to describe God's presence, right? When God is there, there's fire. In fact, Psalm 104 verse 4 tells us that the Lord makes his angels, makes his messengers flames of fire. Very common image here. But this is not a common situation. This word for angel of the Lord is the Malak Adonai. And we translate that, the angel of the Lord. The word malak is just messenger, just like the word angel just means messenger in Greek. Except malak is Hebrew, of course, it's Old Testament. And Adonai is how you vocalize the name Yahweh. So messenger of Yahweh, if you want to make that literal. It doesn't have quite the same ring as angel of the Lord to me, but there you go. So we have a messenger from the Lord an angel from the Lord burning in the bush. But we've talked about this before. We see the Malach Adonai a lot in the Old Testament. And whenever he shows up, things become very interesting because he's clearly distinct from the Lord. He's not the Lord. It says this is an angel of the Lord and he will speak to and about the Lord. And yet when people address him, they will call him Lord. Not as in Sir, as in Yahweh. They'll call him Lord. They will worship him. He will receive sacrifices. He will forgive sins. And what does it say in the New Testament? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But we know that there's only one God, which is very, very interesting, isn't it? In Joshua chapter 5, we see the angel of the Lord appears to Joshua in the form of a man with a sword. And it's a very, very, very parallel passage to Moses. He takes off his sandals and all the rest of it. Zechariah chapter 3, we see the angel of the Lord standing in heaven while Satan tries to accuse another different Joshua before him. Judges 13, when Samson is, is announced, his birth is announced, they offer sacrifices to this angel. And then the sacrifice burns up and the angel goes up with the fire. And Samson's dad turns to his mom and says, we're going to die. Because we saw God. No, no, it says angel of the Lord. Do you you see how it's interesting? This is not God, but he's also spoken of as God. And when he speaks, it'll say the Lord speaks. And the the traditional understanding is still the best one. I actually was very pleased in, in some of these Old Testament commentaries that I have, which have a tendency to skew much more liberal theologically than you would like, where somebody goes, the theological or traditional interpretation of this is still the best one. That this is the second person of the Godhead. We believe in a triune God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is one of the reasons why. 
Because the Old Testament hammers, there's only one God, and yet you have stories like this, as we're going to see as we go through. So, as it says in John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. I think that term Logos, you could just as easily say the angel of the Lord, the messenger. Jesus is, in fact, the messenger of the Lord, is he not? The ultimate, consummate angel of the Lord. Zechariah has a lot of cool passages with with him in there, and you should check those out. So this is the pre-incarnate Son of God. Later on, the angel of the Lord, as it says, and John would become flesh, and we would know him by a different name, and that's the last time we're going to hear of the angel of the Lord. So this is a very Trinitarian passage that you see here. It's important to note that. So it's the angel of the Lord, but this is the Lord himself. So Moses is in the wilderness, and a bush becomes host to the presence of God. Think about that for a minute. Yeah, God speaks in many wonderful and glorious ways, but this time it's a bush. It's a burning bush, and it's not being burned up, but it's a bush. You would never think, God's going to speak to me out of that bush (laughs) right there. So what do we learn from this? Here's our first lesson. We're going to look at five attributes of God. Number one, God is imminent. This is imminent with an A. Imminent with an I means about to happen. Immanent means close by, transcendent and yet close, near. God is there. He's close. He is available to you. This is not just omnipresence. Omnipresence means God is everywhere. We believe that God is everywhere. But it's not, that can sound sort of glib, can't it? Well, God's everywhere. It's like, all right, if God's everywhere, then he might as well be nowhere to me because I'm not experiencing him. Unless you know that God is also imminent, meaning that God is near. He is at hand. He is ready to speak to his people. He's interested in what's going on in the world. He's active in the world. We're going to talk about that. And he wants to speak even to you. So God is, it fills the highest heaven, and yet he's also right here. He's a participant in the world. Genesis 28, 16, remember when Jacob had his dream of the stairway to heaven and he woke up and said, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. We talked about that then, that many people thought that they had the house of God is here. The gateway to heaven is here. And here's Jacob in the middle of nowhere and stumbles on the stairway to heaven. It's not that that spot was unique. It's that God was there and God is everywhere and is ready to reveal himself to us. God is not confined to a single location. He can manifest himself anywhere at any time. This is what we mean when we sing songs during worship and we say things like, come Holy Spirit. You can get really, you know, pseudo-spiritual and say, oh, the Holy Spirit's already there. Don't you believe in the omnipresence of God? Of course we do. What we're saying is we want the Holy Spirit to show himself, to reveal himself, to manifest his presence here. We're calling on God to demonstrate his imminence, that you're not just everywhere, you're here specifically. You understand? And what this teaches us is that there is more to the world than what you see. This is not normal American thinking in this day and age. If you can't measure it, you can't see it, can't touch it, can't taste it, can't graph it, can't study it, it might as well not exist. That's the arrogance of what we call science. But it's not that 
the process of science is wrong is that you're working with inadequate information, insufficient information. God is there. And here's the best part. God is not out of reach. He's speaking out of a bush. I mean, you should read this story, and I'm not trying to be funny here, but like, you, you never walk by a bush the same way again. Don't you think Moses, every time he passed a bush, just kind of eyed it sideways? God, God spoke out of a bush before. Come on, Dad, it's just a bush. Let me tell you a story, young whippersnapper. God can speak anywhere and out of anything. That's the eminence of God. And that's the, the, the wonderful mystery of being a Christian, that there's more to the world. And when things happen that don't make any sense but work out for us, it's like, I don't know why that happened. It's like, well, I do because God is there. God's always working. He's always acting. His messengers, his angels are all around us. In 2 Kings chapter 6, what a wonderful story. I don't have time to read it. But Elisha was in the city surrounded by an enemy army that had come to kidnap him. And his, uh, his assistant started to panic. What are we going to do? Elisha goes, don't worry. There's more on our team than there is on their team. He goes, no, there's not, you crazy old coot. You think you know everything. They're going to kill you. And he says, Lord, open his eyes that he may see. And his servant had a moment where his spiritual eyes were opened and he saw chariots of fire all surrounding the city. And Elisha's like, don't you know that God is there? There's an army. Yeah, but the Lord is the Lord of armies. He's the Lord of hosts. What's so great about that story is that it was all there. He just couldn't see it. Isn't that the, the, the difference? That God is there, he's invisible, but he's there. And we've got to be able to think that way. That when you're going through your life, God is there. And he could manifest himself and speak to you in a special way at any time. I think this is partly what Jesus meant when he said the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's, it's within you, but it's not so much within like, oh, it's in my heart. No, it's, it's right here. He said, you're not going to go, there's the kingdom. He goes, the kingdom is, is here because God is here. That, that brings some adventure to every single day, doesn't it? That brings possibility to every single day. That brings reverence to what we might call mundane things. Because God spoke out of a bush. He can speak out of mundane things. If Jesus could be born in a manger, and then all of a sudden heaven's open and angels are singing to a bunch of shepherds on the mountain, that, doesn't that make every day full of that divine possibility? That was all there. They just couldn't see it. Well, just another baby born. But this time, the Lord is going to show himself. That's what's so wonderful about being a Christian. Every time we come to worship, you never know if that's going to be the time where the Holy Spirit is going to descend and speak to his people. Every time you preach, you don't know if that's going to be the time where someone's life is just going to get turned around. Every time you pray for somebody, you don't know if God's going to work a miracle in that moment. So that's where faith comes from. That you're not just calling out hoping God hears you. God's right there. So speak and pray like he is. Our first lesson that we learn in the wilderness is that God is there and that God is everywhere and that the world is more than just physics and biology. Now we can actually say with that old song, what a wonderful world, huh? Yes, okay, the sky is beautiful, the waterfalls are great, but God is there and he can speak out of a burning bush. He can speak anywhere. Well, Moses has turned aside and then in verse 4, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, I could just preach that phrase, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. 
And he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. I love that first part of the verse. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, he spoke. God's trying to get your attention. And when you give your attention to God, he will begin to speak. And he calls him out, Moses, Moses. And Moses answers, fascinated. You kind of get the picture that he's sort of creeping up on this bush. What's going on? And the Lord's like, that's far enough. Take off your sandals. This is a very common practice in holy places of this part of the world. We don't do that so much here, but you come into a mosque, for example. I'm not talking about the religion, just talking about the culture. You're going to take your shoes off. For example, one time I was in the airport in Dubai, and, uh, which is in the United Arab Emirates, if you didn't know that, and I saw they had a sign for a prayer room. And this did not specify a Muslim prayer room. And so I thought, well, let's get in a little bit of trouble. <laughs> and I started going back, and I go and I poke my head in, and they had little cubby holes where you could put your shoes because the guys would take their shoes off before they went in to pray. And it was really funny because this, this guy who's about my age, but of course he's wearing the robe and a big long beard. He comes out of the prayer room. His eyes are kind of down. And he sees me and he full on double takes. <laughs> like, you don't, you don't look like the usual guys that come in here, my friend. And this really nice old Arab man comes up to me. He's like, are you looking for the bathroom, sir? <laughs> and I was, very, it was just real nice. And like, we, we know you ain't no Muslim. Come on, you're not. But uh, yeah, they weren't going to have, you know, a crucifix I could borrow or anything like that. But, but all that to say, they took their shoes off to pray. And it's the same kind of culture, right? You, you don't come in here with your shoes on, right? Jesus and the disciples took off their shoes before they ate. Yeah, it's a very common thing here. The priests, you're going to notice, are not going to have any shoes made because they likely would have ministered barefoot in the Lord's house. The presence of the Lord is announced. Who is this that's causing this bush to burn? That's an important question to ask when you're having a spiritual experience like this. Because the Bible says the, the devil will masquerade as an angel of light. So if you hear anything other than, I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you can just tune that channel out. But he says, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Here is our first connection to the book of Genesis that we have that, with the Lord here. That God who had spoken to Abraham, that God. Who spoke to Isaac, that God. Who spoke to Jacob, that God. Who helped Joseph, that God. And now the Lord is speaking again. After 400 years of silence the first time. There will be 400 more at the end of the Old Testament. There's probably some significance to that that I'm just now realizing, but we'll table that for another day. So this is the same Lord that we came to know in Genesis. And Moses knew the stories. He knows he's now face to face with the Creator. The judge, the covenant Lord, the warrior. And so he hides his face. This is standard practice in the Old Testament. God's going to say later in chapter 33, no man can see my face and live. Deuteronomy 5.24, that's how the people knew that Moses was really talking to God because he went up and spoke to God and came back and didn't die. So God must really like you. Gideon in Judges 6.22 has an encounter with the angel of the Lord. And at first, he's all sassy with him. He obviously didn't look like a burning bush. He was just like, oh yeah, God's with us, huh? Yeah, that's why I'm, I'm here threshing wheat in my wine cellar. 
And then when the guy goes away, he goes, that was God. I I saw God's face. I already told you about Samson's parents. 1 John, even in 4 verse 12, says, no man has seen God. So no wonder Moses covers his face. Ah, I wasn't looking. (laughs) I didn't see anything. I just saw the bush. I just saw the fire. Now what is this? Why are we hiding from God? Why are we taking the sandals off? Why are we being reverent? Because God, number two, is holy. This is the first use of the word holy, which is kodesh in the Old Testament. It just means separate. The word means separate. And then by extension, sacred. We use it more in terms of sacred, right? But you need to know that the root word there just means separate. So later on, the Lord will say things like, separate unto me, Paul and Barnabas. Separate unto me, the house of Aaron. Right? Make holy. So it is not that the ground he was on was somehow special ground. God made the ground holy because God was there. That is the definition of the presence of God. His holiness. Revelation, the angels cry without ceasing, holy, holy, holy. Not even loving, 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 or just. They don't don't rotate the attributes. The one thing that occupies the attention of heaven is God's holiness, his separateness, his differentness from everything else, which is going to lead right into the name of God that we're going to read in a few verses here. So Moses is afraid, and you might not really understand why at first. So I understand that God's power might make you afraid. His wrath might make you afraid. Why his holiness? Moses is covering his face. You've got a picture of the rest of it. He's doing it with a, you know, the, the cloak over his head. Why is he afraid? Or Isaiah, woe is me, for I am undone. Why is John afraid? Read the book of Revelation. John had a rough go of it in the book of Revelation. Daniel passed out a couple times when he saw the Lord. Why is this? Well, later we're going to see anything that touches the holy things in the tabernacle needed to be what? It be killed. It needed to be burned. Because if it touches the holy things, take it out and burn it. If you come into the holy place and you're not supposed to be there, you're going to be killed. There's death associated with holiness because something that is holy is so separate and so sacred that to desecrate it, to defile it, is to incur the penalty of death. Remember Uzzah? Uzzah was working for David. They were going to bring the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. They had moved the tabernacle there. They were going to move the Ark of the Covenant there. And they moved it on a cart. It was on a cart being pulled by, by oxen. And so Uzzah's up there. We can imagine him driving the cart. And it says the, ark, the, the uh, wagon hit a bump. And the ark started to slide. So he leans, leans back and touches it to keep it from falling over. And what happened to Uzzah? He died. He died in an instant. And that sort of stopped the parade. And David was not too happy about that. Holiness is something that is so sacred that to encounter it is to die. God is separate from us in his power, in his glory, in his goodness. There's nothing that can stand before him. To do business with God is dangerous business. You know that, don't you? And it should never be done lightly or flippantly. It's it's an important thing for us as New Testament believers to maintain a balance between familiarity with God, love of God, and yet not be irreverent before God. 
right? The, the John and Peter and the other apostles, they knew Jesus personally. But you can see that after the resurrection, there's a distinct shift in the way they speak about him because they recognize who this is. So it's important for us to maintain that as well. We can be honest and open with God and speak plainly before God, but you never want to be talking to God just like you talk to anybody else. He's still God. And you need to recognize that God is separate from you. You have no claim to the presence of God. You don't belong there. And we need to get that. Moses needed to get that because God's going to tell him some things. And God's got words for him to hear and things he's got for him to do. But you know what is so wonderful when we talk about the holiness of God? No one can stand in his presence. No one can see his face. John 1.14 says, The Word, so this is again the Logos. This is the angel of the Lord, so to speak. This is the second person of the Godhead. The same one burning in the bush. He became flesh and dwelt among us. And now do you understand how important this phrase is? And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. How remarkable is that? We saw the glory of the Lord. You can't see the glory of the Lord and survive. No, no, no. He became a man that we could see and talk to. And verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Jesus Christ brought the presence and the glory of God to us. The only way we could know Him. I know it's even better than that. The Holy Spirit of Jesus dwells in you now, making your heart a walking holy place. You don't have to go to the holy ground. You don't have to go to the temple or the holy of holies. You don't have to go to the priest. You don't have to go to church. God is with you. God is in you. We went from the Old Testament that God is there and you can go to the temple to the New Testament. Jesus is born. Emmanuel, God is with us. But Jesus at the Last Supper said, the Holy Spirit is with you, but he shall be in you. And that's why there was no further need for the temple. Because our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. How remarkable is that? This is why Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6, he's like, so uh, don't treat your body like you used to treat it. You would not treat the temple that way. But he also, in Colossians, can speak of the riches of the glory of God that have been made known to us. So God is imminent, but he's also holy. That keeps us from becoming demanding or scheming with God. He's holy. Verse 7. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings. And he knows yours, by the way. And I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. We'll talk more about them when we get to them. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you. 
And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. It's been 400 years since the Hebrews went into Egypt, and God had been silent during that time. But God had not forgotten them. Don't ever mistake the fact that you feel like you haven't had a real connection with God lately as that He's abandoned you or forgotten you. He heard them, and He was ready to liberate them. It's exactly what He told Abraham in Genesis 15, 13. He said, Your children will serve Me as sojourners in a foreign land for 400 years, and then I will bring them out. He said, The iniquity of the Amorites is not complete, meaning they do not deserve the judgment that I'm going to bring upon them, so we will wait it out. That's the mercy of God. He reminds them of that promised land, overflowing with milk and honey. I learned that depending on how you vocalize the word for milk, if you vocalize it, I believe, as milk, it's halav. But if you add e's instead of a's, because remember the vowels are a little iffy sometimes in Hebrew, it'd be chalev, which would be fat. They're both carrying the idea of abundance, right? And but, it, you know, a land flowing with fat and honey just doesn't quite flow quite as well as, as milk did. But, you know, Catelyn, I told her that. I said, well, it must have been whole milk then. You know, it's not skim milk. But we're talking about something that's hearty, right? Something that's savory and good for you. And then honey. This also could be translated sap, like maple syrup. Something sweet. So something that's good for you and something that's just sweet. That's the land of Canaan. And he gives Moses the task to lead them out. He calls him to his destiny. He gives him a vision, which is funny because Moses already kind of had this in him already and thought he was all that in a bag of chips and tried to make it happen on his own. Forty years later, he goes, who am I? I tried that. I know I'm not up to the task. You ever fail and it just deflates your whole life and you can't think about yourself the same way anymore? He says, who am I? God doesn't go, you're great. You're Moses, man. Don't you know who you're going to be? He says, I'll be with you. That's all that matters. I'll be with you. And Moses is going to try to say no five times. This is the first time in this sequence. We're not going to get to them all tonight. But God is ready to get to work. And this is our next point, number three. God is active. He's aware of the world and he acts in the world. Take comfort in the fact that God is always more concerned about injustice than you are. There are so many people that today are like, well, I've seen the injustice in the world, and the God of the Bible doesn't seem to care about that kind of thing, so I'm going to do it myself. Foolishness to think of our limited perspective and try to compare that to God's. God was allowing the injustice against the Israelites to continue because he was showing mercy to the Amorites, who were committing all kinds of injustice against their people, who were probably crying out for help too. But God allowed that to continue. He says, yes, you cry out for justice. That's easy to say justice. But justice is going to mean the wiping out of an entire nations of people. And God is able to weigh those things in the balance. When God makes promises, they're not idle. He's not distant. He's not unconcerned. God is like a father, right? He, you, fathers, you want to be involved in the lives of your children. You want to participate. You want to be there. And you're not going to live the life for them, but you want to be there. He's, God is also like an artist who cares about his creation. An artist who doesn't care about the things he makes is what we call a hack. 
You're just doing it to get a quick buck, and, and nobody really likes it very much. You pour yourself into that. The Lord is also a king. This is his kingdom. This is his world. And his name and his, his power, his reputation is at stake. And so he's going to act. Isaiah 64, 4 says, From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. What defines God more than any other God? He acts for those who wait for him. Now, the Greeks would offer their sacrifices and everything. That was more to get their God in a good mood and make them like him than anything else. But you offer your sacrifices to Zeus, he'll do what you like if he feels like it. Sometimes all he would do is just leave you alone, and sometimes he would be like, you know what, I'm still mad. Or Zeus, would, you'd please Zeus, but not Apollo, and he would come and he would take care of you. That, God is a God who actually acts for us. And the world has somehow gotten so used to that idea, now we assume that God should work for me. That's backwards, isn't it? But here's the cool thing. God doesn't just act, let there be, boom. Now it's over. He uses people. He uses angels. He uses men just like you to accomplish his work. That is the way he does it. It's always been the way he does it. This is why he made the world. He calls Moses to execute his will. He always raises up a man to fulfill the vision that he has. That is that thing that's burning on your heart that we talked about last time, the reason you are alive and what's your vision, your destiny. You might not be ready for it yet, but God wants to get you ready. He wants to take you to the wilderness so that you can meet him and make the right changes and then send you back to fulfill that vision. And you can wander in the wilderness your whole life waiting for one more good epiphany so you can finally start doing what you want to do when you can meet God who can give you the reason why. Think about it. What is the why of your life? You know, if you, you never say this to somebody. Say, hi, my name is Tyler Warner. Why? Oh, my parents give you that name. No, 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 no. Why are you alive? Why, what, do, what does the world need this person for? Think about that for yourself. You probably asked it about it of yourself. Is there any reason for me to be alive? There is, I assure you. What vision has God given to you? What I love about this story is that Moses had something on his heart, and it was exactly what was on God's heart too. When God puts something in there, very often he's stirring you up to get you ready for the moment when he'll send you out. Once again, that brings adventure to every day, doesn't it? The world is not just a supernatural place with a holy God, but that he acts in that world through you. And he wants to bring about amazing changes and transformations to the world through you. Being a Christian is not a passive thing, y'all. Sometimes like we think we're saved to be Christians just so we can like be Christians. Isn't this great? Being Christians. Well, there's a reason why God saved you and raised you up and sent you out. You've got work to do. And Moses asked the Lord in verse 13, running out of time, we've got to get to this. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord 
the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. It's not clear why Moses asks this question. Maybe he's thinking they'll test me. Are you really a Hebrew? You lived with Pharaoh for 40 years, and then you lived in Midian for 40 years. What's God's name? It also could be that they had forgotten God's name. Abraham seemed to use the name the Lord, or that could just be that as Moses wrote it down, he included the name the Lord. Most often we saw God referred to as El Shaddai in the book of Genesis. This could be an entirely new revelation here. Well, God answers the question with these Hebrew words, Eye, Asher, Eye. So tell him, Eye has sent you. So when it says, I am who I am, that is Hebrew, Eye, Asher, Eye. This is the Cal imperfect first person singular verb form. First person singular means it's referring to me. Cal is the, the Hebrew form, it's not really relevant to English. And imperfect refers to uncompleted action of the verb chaya, which means to be. So what's remarkable about the Hebrew, the word eye can be translated I was, I am, or I will be. Isn't that something? I was, I am, and I will be. I am is, the, is probably how we ought to translate it in this context, but you can see how there's loaded theology just in the words he uses. And I'll share, you know, is it I am who I am or I am that I am? You can translate it either way. But since we're talking about a person, most of the newer translations have who I am, because God is a person. And in verse 15, he says his actual name. So you've got to note this. The actual revelation of the name is in verse 15. He says, well, who are you? What's your name? He goes, I am who I am. Tell them I am has sent me to you. And then in verse 15, he says, this is my name. In your Bible, it just says the Lord, but you'll notice it has capital letters. Anytime you see L-O-R-D, and it's all capitals in your Bible, and I believe all the modern translations do this, it is translating the name of God. In the Hebrew, those four letters are Y-H-W-H. And remember, the vowels came much later in the Hebrew language, so they would have had them, they just wouldn't have written them down. So it's been vocalized differently. It's called the tetragram, or the tetragrammaton, which means the four letters, right? So it's just read as Adonai, which means Lord or Master. It's a different word than this one. But they'll say that because the Hebrews believed it was impious to actually speak the name of God. Note that it's not in the Bible. That is a tradition that grew up later. And this traditionally, back in the day, around 1520, was when we first got the word Jehovah. Because you take the letters Yahweh, or Y-H-W-H, and you would, the, in, the, in the way the language came across to English, J is kind of how we put most of the Ys in Hebrew. Jerusalem, Jacob, those names all start with Ys. We add Js to them. And then they, they took the W sound, which in modern Hebrew is the v, v sound, but in ancient Hebrew it was a W. And then you add the vowels for Adonai. You add those vowels, Adonai, and then you got Jehovah. That is almost certainly, and I'm saying almost not to make anybody mad, but that is almost certainly not what that, what that name was, because there is no J sound in Hebrew. And in this sentence here, it would have been a W sound instead of a V sound. So then what are 
the vowels there? Well, you'll notice in the Bible, just about everybody's name ends with Yah. Isaiah, Jeremiah. And that is a form of this name. So, Yah. And then based on most other words that we know that had that kind of structure, we believe that it would have been the E sound. So you get Yahweh. Little pet peeve of, of Tyler's. Many people, especially when they're trying to sound smart, will say Yahweh. That is not a chet in the middle. It's just an H. Yah, right? His name is not Isaiah or Jeremiah, right? Yah, and it's not a V sound. That sound did not enter Hebrew until Hebrew had encountered a lot of European languages that had the V sound. So Yahweh, and maybe we'll discover something later that shows us that we're wrong too, but Yahweh, the name of the Lord, and that's why we call him the Lord, is part of that tradition. Now, what is this name here, Yahweh? What, what does it exactly mean? Well, it's very similar to, to most of the names in the Bible. Right? You get a name like Jacob, well, heel catcher. It doesn't literally mean heel catcher, but it's, it's close enough and sounds close enough that that's what the name means. So Yahweh, you hear it, sounds just like Eye or all the other verbs that are in that family of words. So when he explains the name, that's not like you can say, okay, this form of the, of the verb. People have speculated that it's what's called the hifil form, but you never see this word in that form, so that's very unlikely. The point is that what is the name of God? Yahweh. And how is that explained by those words? Eye, asher, eye. I am who I am. So that's important for us to know. That is so key. This name puts God against all other so-called gods, all other primordial materials, right? God is. That's our next attribute. God is. It teaches us that God is self-existent. He is not contingent on anything else for his own being. You and I have a lot of contingencies for our own existence. Mothers and fathers. Oxygen, right? <laughs> we need space to exist. We need time to exist. We need blood. We need bones. The Lord doesn't need any of that. And people talk about, well, you know, when God was in space, how did, no, 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 there was no space. I love saying this because I think this helps. God was not floating around in space before creation. God was. God was everything. We're saying God was space. There was no space. It was just God. And then God created. And everything that we call the world is something that is outside of who God is. There was nothing other than God until God said, let there be. You might even add, let there also be. Because I am let there also be light. And God created the world. Everything that exists came from God. This makes him the master of it. Makes him the standard of morality. We define what is right by how it lines up with God. Because God is the ultimate reality. He has authority. He's worthy of worship. We see this in Revelation. Tying a lot of these things together. 4 verse 8. The four living creatures, each of them with six wings, full of eyes all around and within... Think about that later. Day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. That's that name. God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. It's all tied together. True worship is to bow before him and live your life by his example. The Jews had many superstitions surrounding what they call Hashem. 
Do you ever see that written in an article somewhere? Hashem, H-A-S-H-E-M. That's Hebrew for the name. So sometimes Jewish writers out of respect will not say God. They'll say Hashem, which means the name, which is this name, which they don't speak or write. Sometimes they'll eliminate the middle O with a dash to not have the vowel there. But you know, later on, in Philippians 2 verse 9, it tells us that Jesus Christ would receive from his Father the name that is above every name. Understand how significant that is. The name that is above every name, including Yahweh. When you take the time to think through some of these verses, they're not just poetic. They're significant. He could not take a title like that. How could Jesus have a title that is above I am, unless he also was? In John 18, 6, when they came to arrest Jesus, they showed up with Judas and the robbers and the, the brick bats and the, the police are there to arrest him. Who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. And in John 18, Jesus said, I am. The Greek there is ego eimi. It is the Greek form of Yahweh. It is the Greek form of that name, I am. And it says, when he said that, they drew back and fell on the ground. So they come to arrest Jesus. Why is this never included in, in the movies? I don't know why. But like, he says, who are you looking for? We're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. Have you seen him? He goes, I am. Boom. And you just picture like one of those like sound bubbles like rippling out and knocking everybody down. And they got up and he goes, hey, who are you looking for? Like, Jesus of Nazareth? <laughs> no one takes my life from me, right? So to properly honor and serve Yahweh, you must honor and serve his son, Jesus Christ. This is a profound idea. This is more profound than anything else, any religion, anywhere has come up with. That God is. They were, you know, believing that the, the gods lived in the oven. And God, you know, you got to watch out at, at this time because it's that God's day and he'll come for you. And God goes, my name is I am. So we're talking about, people want to talk about the evolution of religion. If you believe in that, you have to believe that the Hebrews were so far ahead of everybody else, you can't even measure it. Or you can believe that it's true, which makes a little more sense to me. Well, verse 16 through 22 now. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, there it is again, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise, underline that, I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. So there you have the promised land. And they will listen to your voice. And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, that's the name, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. And now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. So here's the instructions. Got to go a little quickly now. 
Go tell the people. Go get the elders together. Tell them we're going to go to Pharaoh and demand a three-day journey to worship the Lord. Now, was he lying here? Probably not. Some people say, well, this is like, this is like bargaining, like in the bazaar, the marketplace. Uh, three days. No, not three days. And he's going to eventually work him up to the full journey. No, God is saying, look, I'm going to give Pharaoh an opportunity to do something very small. He's not even going to do that, though. So later on, he's not going to get to say, I would have let you go. He says, all we asked for was three days, and you still didn't give it to us. He says, I know he's not going to go, unless compelled by my mighty hand. That's the first mention of the plagues we have here. And he promises you're going to be compensated for your labors. So here's our last lesson. God is able. He's able to accomplish these things. Oh, yes, God is there. I believe that. And yes, God is holy. Absolutely. And yes, God is active. He's working. And God is. He was the first thing that, yes, okay. But what can he do? And if you're surrounded by a polytheistic culture, then okay, yes, God is great. But do you know how many gods Pharaoh has? I mean, yeah, you could probably beat up one or two, but I mean, what about all, all of them? God is going to do his wonders in Egypt. He is able to do what he wants to do. Nothing holds God back. Earth and spirit are at his command. And I find this fascinating. So many people believe God can save their soul, but they don't believe that he can walk on water. They don't believe he can burn a bush. I was reading a commentary where this guy was like, Probably Moses saw the light shining through the bush. And then he goes on to talk about how, you know, you know this Jesus rose from the dead. And I'm sitting there thinking, is it more, is it easier to, to raise from the dead or to have a bush burn? It's remarkable to me. But we do this in our lives too. We believe God's going to save our soul, but he can't save the, heal the sick. I don't believe God can provide for my needs. Well, he's God, isn't he? If you know our first lesson that you're living in a spiritual world and that God is right there and he's active in it and he's called you to execute his will, don't doubt the certainty of what God has said. The Lord told Jeremiah, Behold, I'm the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? <laughs> I don't know how you're going to do this, Lord. Sometimes we pray that way. We don't want to come out and say it, but what we do, we hedge our bets. Lord, we want you to you know, save this nation and, and uh, you know, I mean, maybe, maybe we could, you know, get a, a nice president next time or, or, or at least, uh, you know, Lord, make my life a little, little nicer, you know, whatever, whatever you want to do, God. The Lord's like, what do you want then? Do you think I can do this or not? Or sometimes you pray something bold and somebody comes behind you and kind of like, you know, apologizes to God for you. Philippians 4.13, not only that, says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Moses says, who am I? God goes, who cares? I'm with you. So look at your life. Oh, don't, you don't know my life. I don't need to know your life. I know the God who you serve. Moses is going to need some convincing in the rest of this, this story, but after all that you know, you should be convinced. We as Christians have no right to despair. I'm seeing a lot of people despairing over a lot of things these days. Well, that's it for the world. The only thing that's left is the rapture, I guess. What? what? Faith, what and love? Hope. Hope and love. Well, that's it for my marriage. It's never going to happen. No, we don't, you don't get to say that. That's the end of my country. It's the end of my kids. That's the end of... No, no, no. You don't get to despair. You have an eternal God. Where is your faith? Well, faith is for salvation. Faith is for everything. 
Jesus rebuked his disciples over and over again for the littleness of their faith. Like, guys, it's me. It's me, Jesus. Where is your faith, Christian? In the God who is imminent. There's an invisible world you can't see, and God is there. That God is holy. His presence is dangerous in its righteousness and its separateness, but you belong there by the blood of Jesus. God is active. He wants to use you to affect His will. God is. He's the only non-contingent reality. And God is able. He can get the job done. So when you're wandering in the wilderness, you've got to learn these truths about God. If you, you, you can't just come to God and say, Lord, I want to fulfill my destiny and I want my life to succeed and I want to have a great marriage and I want to do great in business and all that. The Lord's into all that. But you can't come and just ignore all that spiritual theology stuff. You've got to learn that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. And you are his messenger in Christ Jesus. And here's the last thing I want to talk about here. Did you see what the Lord said was the sign that he would have that all this was going to come true? He said, here's your sign. You and the children of Israel will worship me on this mountain. Moses probably goes, hold on a minute. The sign that you're going to do this will be when it's over? So I'm not going to know for sure until it's done? That's like the Lord saying, I'm going to give you a sign that you're going to marry that girl. Oh, yes, Lord, what is it? When the preacher says, I, you know, I now pronounce you husband and wife, you may kiss the bride. You go, wait a minute. That's not a sign. Oh, yes, it is. How? What God has given Moses is a vision of what he's going to do. He says, I want you to take this, Moses. Look around at this mountain. And I want you to picture in your mind, see it with me, that all the children of Israel, no longer slaves, will be gathered here. And instead of just the bush burning, it's going to be this whole mountain burning. And I'm going to give them my law, and they're going to worship me at this mountain, having left behind all of the trouble of Egypt. Can you see that, Moses? I, I think I can. I, that would be awesome, Lord. He goes, then hold on to that. That's your sign. When Pharaoh says, no, you go home and you just you think about that. And you remember what I told you. You're going to worship me on this mountain. When the children of Israel are ready to kick you out and hand you over to Pharaoh, you sit back and you remember, we're going to worship the Lord on this mountain. Keep that vision in your mind, Moses. When they are in the wilderness and they say, we should go back to Egypt. If you keep in your mind, you're going to worship me on this mountain. Keep the vision at the forefront of your mind. Well, how can I know it's true? God spent the whole rest of the time revealing who he was. So do the same thing in your life, y'all. What has God called you to do? Get that in your mind. Hold it at the forefront of your mind. And then trust that God is good enough to make that happen. Lord, I'm looking for a sign. God goes, how about I give you a dream? Not like Daniel or Joseph had a dream. I'm not like a dream of what I'm going to do through you, what I'm going to use you for, what your church could be, what your family could be, what you could be doing your ministry. This, this little children's ministry class with two or three kids in it, what could this be? This discovery club that we're going to launch, what could that be? And when you have all of that and it's supported by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and all that he can do and the great I am who's behind you, then when things get tough, you just come right back to that and you hold it at the front of your mind again and say, that's where we're going. Well, how do you know? Because God promised and God is able to accomplish everything he's promised.